essentially all the money that was going to go to office is going to get allocated somewhere else. My view, and, and I, you know, I'm walking our talk, is every decade new asset class gets birthed in real estate and bill for rent is, is going to be the next one. I think that's like going to become the biggest real estate asset class of this decade. And I think it's going to have great fundamentals for a long time to come. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So for the past couple of weeks, I've ended the episode saying we're going to talk about Brookfield and their office defaults in LA, but we've changed up our plan a little bit. We're going to look a little deeper at office distress that we're seeing across the country in a special two-part episode. So the first will air next week and we'll look at Brookfield in downtown LA, and then we'll get into defaults we're seeing in New York, San Francisco, and Chicago and really dig into what this wave of distress might mean for all the players involved. So large banks, developers, big investment firms, et cetera. Right. A real deep dive. Since we're all talking about defaults and delinquencies and distress, we thought it earned some more airtime. But today, instead, we're chatting with Ben Miller. He's the CEO of investment platform Fundrise. And we're getting into how he refocused his firm's investment strategy when interest rates spiked and why he's bullish on the credit side of CRE. I'm really fascinated by crowdfunding, so I'm excited to get into that interview. Um, But first, let's look at the top news of last week. We can start off with one of New York's most iconic buildings is up for auction. Yeah, the Flatiron Building. So what happened there? So the owners of the building have been in a legal dispute for the last couple of years. Sorgente Group, Jeffrey Garral's GFP Real Estate and ABS Real Estate Partners own 75% of the building, and Nathan Silverstein owns the remaining 25%. The 75% crowd filed a lawsuit in 2021 seeking what's called a partition sale. They said a number of agreements had arose between them and Silverstein and wanted to resolve it. A New York state judge has now approved the sale and an auction has been set for March 22nd. Okay, so I feel like we can use context clues here, but for anyone who might be unfamiliar with the term, can you explain what a partition sale is? Yeah, sure. So a partition auction happens when there are multiple owners of a property and all proceeds from the auction are distributed based on ownership interests. So I guess if you've dreamed of owning the Flatiron building, this might be your chance. Wow. Also, the commercial brokerages have all released earnings and a lot of cost cutting seems to be in the mix. JLL said it was looking to cut $125 million in costs this year after it reported a 59% drop in profits in the fourth quarter. I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume they're trying to make those costs through layoffs. Yeah, so CFO Karen Brennan said that on the firm's earnings call, but she didn't detail how many would lose their jobs or which divisions would be affected. And as we've reported before, JLL started laying off employees last year. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only commercial brokerage doing that, right? Cushman and Wakefield is also planning to cut costs. They said on their earnings call last month that they wanted to save $90 million this year. What were its earnings like in the fourth quarter? Not ideal. Cushman and Wakefield reported an 80% drop in fourth quarter profits compared to a year ago. Mm, Okay. So commercial brokerages, you know, they're definitely feeling the pain of a slowdown in transactions. Absolutely. And so are residential brokerages. Anywhere Real Estate, which owns Coldwell Banker, Sotheby's, Corcoran, and Century 21, reported a $450 million loss in the fourth quarter. CEO Ryan Schneider said they're expecting a, quote, volatile year. 
We're also seeing mortgage rates hover around 7% again, which might lead to a dip in mortgage applications. And that's not great news for brokerages. Right. Yeah. So we'll just have to see how that kind of affects them going forward. On the topic of earnings, Starwood Property Trust actually had a pretty great fourth quarter. The REIT reported a $140 million profit, up 53% from the same period in 2021. Yeah, I saw that. And I thought it was interesting that Barry Stern, like to the CEO, dismissed office distress affecting them. He said Starwood has, quote, almost no exposure to office in New York and San Francisco and that office represents just 13 percent of its assets. That seems weird. Didn't Starwood just buy up an office building in L.A.? Yeah, they did. They acquired the entirely vacant Broadway Trade Center in downtown L.A. through a foreclosure. That building was formerly owned by Joel Schreiber. And now Starwood is looking at redevelopment opportunities or to sell the property. Either it has to find an equity partner or it's just going to offload it altogether. Got it. So it's not going to hold on to that for very much longer, most likely. Right. If it can find a partner or sell it, which both of those scenarios are pretty tough right now. Okay, so while we have public REITs on the brain, let's get into the interview with Ben Miller. So little context here, he's the CEO of Fundrise, that's a crowdfunded real estate platform. He touts it as opening up the world of CRE investment to individual investors, folks who may have an equities portfolio and maybe they've maxed out their IRA, but they're looking to diversify their investments further and they're interested in real estate. So while Starwood seems to have turned the corner on that rough patch that public REITs went through, it's still pretty rocky for other firms. Blackstone, for one, is still limiting withdrawals from B-REIT, Bloomberg reported last week, and the index that tracks REITs, that has fallen about 25% year over year. I chatted with Ben about how private REITs and individual real estate assets have performed within that public downturn. We got into where the opportunity lies in real estate, given the hit that interest rates have served to CRE deals and which asset classes he likes once equities markets work out the kinks. I thought we could start off with you just giving us an explainer of what Fundrise is, what it offers as an investment platform. Okay. So I think of Fundrise as part of the future of real estate, and that is essentially about technology. So people think of us as a way to democratize investing into real estate or other private assets, but that's really one of the products. The real differentiator, real means to our ends is is to use technology to take real estate and make it like the public markets or like any other technology industry where it's efficient, transparent, and accessible. I know that Fundrise's main product is REITs, real estate investment trusts, and specifically ones that don't trade on a public exchange. And in the past year, you know, we've seen public REITs really falter. I think the index fell something like 25% year over year. Private REITs, though, have seemed pretty insulated from that hit. So I was wondering, why do you think that is? A lot of people who are onlookers looking at public REITs versus versus like private assets, forget private REITs, just private assets here. Let's talk about equity of the things we do most of, which is multifamily, single family, uh, rental, built for rent, and industrial. Most people are looking at it and saying, well, public REITs fell 20 to 30%. Why hasn't everything else fallen 20 to 30%? Partly what happened is that 2021, the public markets went bananas. They went up because of all the free money. 
And so you're looking at a relative change of 20 to 30% against basically like an elevated number. So I think the, the real question, if you go look at the fundamentals and said, okay, like what's the cap rate you're looking at? And so the cap rates of public REITs last year were in the threes and super low fours. And then they repriced. And now they're in the mid fours, like MAA is mid-America. They're like our closest comp. They basically own multifamily in the Sunbelt. And they, I think last I checked, they were at a four, seven cap rate. That's not that high, not that low. If you're a real estate person, you hear that, you think like, well, that doesn't seem like a steal. And I think private market assets, like if you try to buy an apartment building, I suspect they're trading the mid to high fours if they trade at all. So I, I look at that and I say like, okay, I don't see a big disconnect on multifamily or built for rent. And then industrial, Prologis is trading, I think at a 3.9 cap right now, according to Green Street's numbers. So, so that seems like, that just doesn't seem that cheap to me. So when I, when I hear this narrative about public versus private assets, I'm like, well, have you actually, have you done the work to look at the cap rates? And if you haven't, it's just like, it's just a throwaway comment. So talk a little bit about the equity investments. Like what do those funds look like? Because I know that it's pretty diversified. Like you said, there's industrial. I know that there's single family. I know that there's multifamily. So like if I'm an investor getting into something, what will that look like? Yeah, well, we have like 12 different funds. And so you have to look at it by strategy. So we have like a, a debt fund. Debt funds are the second biggest strategy and that it's unlevered. If you made mezzanine debt investments into multifamily, which is mostly what we do, those basically have been chugging along great. And those have like a 10, 11, 12% yield. So our equity REITs were the one that really took a markdown. So you have to sort of like break those apart and look at both equity versus debt and then also kind of the product type because industrial is actually doing pretty well, better than I think anybody expected. And, you know, office or retail have been in like a, train wreck. Inside of that, you really have to go fund by fund or, or strategy by strategy. We talked before in 2021 or so, and it seemed like Fundrise was really in growth mode as far as building all of these single family rentals. And it seemed like you were picking up new assets. You know, CRE deals have sort of like floundered recently. The price of the construction has gone up. How has that affected how you're looking at growth for the company? We mostly bought Class B multifamily apartments in the Sunbelt from like 2015 to 2019. And then in the middle of the pandemic, when everything sort of blowing up, we turned around and bought a lot of new construction, essentially in lease up, because there was a lot of concern about the market. And so we purchased about a half a billion dollars of built for rent and multifamily in lease up. And then the market kind of went on a tear and those turned out to be good buys in retrospect. And then we started basically like partnering with developers to build new construction industrial. So it was mostly, we moved to sort of class A new construction in the Sunbelt of multifamily, build for rent and industrial. And that basically has been like our focus until recently. And really recently we pivoted to the credit and being a credit investor rather than being an equity investor because the equity markets for the last six or so months, maybe a little longer, have been not attractive. And we basically slowed down buying equity or buying properties last spring. It's almost a year ago. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's more attractive than equity? Like we understand that the equity markets are not doing well, but like what is alluring about credit right now? Our funds are crossover funds, which means they can invest in public and private assets. And so we owned a lot of these public REITs that we're talking about. We owned Prologis and we owned MAA and we owned Essex. And, and we sold them all shortly after the Russian invaded Ukraine. We sold all our public REITs and we basically got out of equities. 
And then we went into semi-public debt markets in uh, the summer. We started buying asset-backed securities because the asset-backed security market essentially was disrupted, still is, but was much more disrupted late last year. And the reason why that's attractive to answer the question of like, why do that, right? You could get a 9, 10, 11, 12% yield on like part of the capital stack, you'd say like 65%, 75% of, of LTC, of the cost. So you basically can be way deep in the in the actual capital stack, but get equity-like returns. And so that that made that like kind of a no-brainer. And that's still true of the public REITs and the and the private real estate assets. It's still equity-like returns deeper in the stack and the credit part of the market. So that being said, looking forward into 2023, does that seem to be your trajectory where focusing on credit, not so much on equity? Or do you think that could change if we see, for example, the Fed you know, decide that it's, it's good with raising rates or public markets bounce back? Yeah. So we're, we're super heavily focused on credit. We have a credit fund. We're lending to that space. And then the question about like, when do you go back into equity? I believe the market will, will basically break. And that idea that we will have this soft landing was like a false dawn. And probably the second half of this year is going to be pretty messy. I don't think we're going to get out of this without a recession. That's like a hopeful triumph over experience. The market will break. Like, what does that mean to you? You know, stock market falls 15, 20% more from where it is today. The Fed like, actually probably doesn't lower rates through this year, but it's like less liquidity, more fear, more forced selling, kind of a, not like an 08, like an 01, maybe. We sort of go off a cliff the second half of this year is what I sort of think is like a 65% chance, like a high likelihood. You know, once, I mean, assuming I'm right, which I could be wrong, once the equity markets do reprice, like where is the equity opportunity likely to be, right? Where's the, like right now it's credit. Today it's credit, it's not equity. Yeah, let's talk about that. What do you think? Essentially all the money that was going to go to office is going to get allocated somewhere else. My view, and, and I, you know, I'm walking our talk, is, is build for rent residential. I think build for rent, which I define maybe a little differently because most people imagine like a house that someone builds for rent. That's not, I think, what build for rent is a new asset class. And I think it's going to mean like horizontal apartment buildings. Somebody who builds, you know, 100, 150 homes in one place, in one community with a leasing center and a pool and a property manager. And it basically looks just like an apartment building, except for its homes rather than units, condo units. I think that's like going to become the biggest real estate asset class of this decade. It's like every decade, new asset class gets birthed in real estate and build for rent is is going to be the next one. Do you think that's because we are seeing the housing market stay tight and also the rental market stay tight and it's just like people need somewhere else to go? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's there's two different reasons why somebody wants that build for rent product. One is that they want a house and they can't afford to own, so they rent. But I think the other part of the market, which is really the big part of the market, is that fundamentally a house is better than an apartment. And if we can build for rent homes that give everybody all the same amenities as an apartment at the same rent, we will basically beat apartments day in, day out. And so unless you want to live in New York, like if you want to live in Austin or Tampa or Atlanta or Dallas, like you can get a house at the same rent as or less than an apartment. And I think that is a killer product. 
Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're finally looking into Brookfield and their defaults in downtown LA. Tune in then.